All right, well, thank you, choir. That is a prelude of what you can hear tonight at our Christmas celebration, so come out and support the choir and the, the worship band. Uh, we are in our Birth of Hope series. We're looking at, at births in the Bible that brought hope to people. And I just want to remind you as we get into our story today that these were real people. They are real people. They're with the Lord now, but they were real people with real, real circumstances, uh, real fears, real um, uh, struggles that they faced. And so these births really did bring hope to them. And God is still working in people's lives today. He's still in the business of bringing hope to ordinary people who trust in Him. And so just keep that in mind as we get into our story today. We are going to be in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke 1, verse 5, if you want to turn there. And as you look for that passage, I'm going to just give a little background here. It's been 500 years since we returned from exile. We were so excited when the Persian king Cyrus said that we could go home. It was like, it was like a dream. We had thought about it for so long. And finally, after 70 years, he said we could go. Our people had become quite successful in Babylon. God had told us to pray for the prosperity of our city, and He said that if we prayed, He would bless us. And so we prayed and He blessed. But when the announcement came, we, we sold our homes and we sold our businesses. We, we remembered God's promise to make Jerusalem a great nation, a great city, and, and to, to make us the head and not the tail of the world. And so we were willing to sacrifice to make that happen. And so we left with a lot of joy, a lot of excitement, but when we got there, things didn't go as planned. We weren't prepared for how badly the city had been devastated. It was beyond anything that we had imagined. We had left behind the modern infrastructure of Babylon, and here we were in a third world country. We struggled just to survive. It was a, it was a grind every day. And in the midst of that, when we could find time, we tried to rebuild the temple and the city, but, but neighboring tribes were always trying to stop us. Eventually, after a hundred years, we finished the work, but the temple wasn't impressive. We couldn't afford very ex- many expensive materials, so we just had to make do with simple supplies and what we could scavenge from the ruins of the city and from the countryside. The new temple was so ugly that some people who had seen Solomon's temple wept with disappointment. Our country remained poor and powerless. We we were ruled by the Persians, and then by the Greeks, and then by the Syrians, and then finally by the Romans with their puppet king Herod, who's not even a full Jew. He's he's a descendant of Esau. The prophets told us to be faithful and to keep trusting God, but it was hard. People became cynical. We didn't give up our religion because that's what gave us our identity, but we lost hope. And finally, even the prophets disappeared and God stopped speaking. It's been 450 years since the last prophet Malachi. Before he died, he said that the Lord would come to his temple, but first the Lord would send a messenger ahead to prepare our hearts for him. I don't know if that messenger is ever going to come. If he does, he's going to have a tough job. I mean, why hasn't God kept His promises to us? Why is He silent? Where are these supposed miracles that He used to do? Of course, I'm I'm still religious. I go to the synagogue. I, I go through the motions. I don't need to get trouble from the religious authorities. I have enough problems in my life. 
But deep down, I don't expect much from God. I know I'm on my own. That would have been the sentiment of many people in the time of the passage that we're reading today. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly div- division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. So, Zechariah is a priest. Now, in our culture today, we don't know a lot about priests, but the reality is there were many priests in in Israel at this time. And so to be a priest was not that important. There was 18,000 priests. So there's a lot of priests. It's kind of like pastors. There's a lot of pastors. But the high priest is the big dog. He's the one in charge. He's kind of like the pope. And so him and his family, they're over the temple. But all these other priests, there's they would go, they would be in a division, there's 24 divisions with 750 people in them, 750 priests. And so your division would go to the temple twice a year for a week at a time, and then you would also go for the major holidays like Passover. And so you would go and you would just do simple you know, work that needs to be done, cleaning and just all the different, very, you know, very tedious a lot of times, manual work, not that gl- glamorous. And so that's what Zechariah is, he is a priest. And the rest of the time, when he wasn't serving in the temple in Jerusalem, it says that he lived in a rural village in the hills, which means he's poor. Uh, in, our, in our day, we have kind of an idealistic vision of living in the countryside. But in the old days, if you lived out in a little town in the hills, you're not doing too hot. And so he's poor. And he's probably a farmer. Uh, technically, the priests were supported, supposed to be supported by tithes from people. So people would tithe. They actually had to pay a temple tax. And that was supposed to go to support the priests. But at this time in history, uh, the Jewish people are so poor, they, they're heavily taxed already by Herod. And then on top of that, the temple system is corrupt. And so the high priests were taking a lot off the top that really shouldn't have gone to them. And so the average priest, like Zechariah, probably didn't get that much of that much tithe money. And so to support themselves, they often had to farm. And so he's probably a farmer. He probably helped to lead his little, uh, the, the synagogue in his little village. Uh, and so to, maybe an analogy for him would be a bivocational pastor in a small little town, in a little church. So think of a, a little rural town in the middle of nowhere, uh, Midwest or Nevada, or just somewhere way off the beaten path, tiny little congregation, and there's this pastor, and the congregation is too poor and too small to support him, and so he has to do another job. So that's basically Zechariah. And his wife, Elizabeth, is also from a ministry background. And so they're, they're in ministry together, and it says that they obeyed God blamelessly. That doesn't mean that they never sinned, but it means the word blameless means that from a human perspective, there's nothing that you could blame. You could not look at their lives and find some way that they were disobeying the law, disobeying God's commandments. You couldn't say, oh, that's, that's where they're messing up. They were, they were blameless. You'd look at them and say, well, I can't find anything to blame in them. But even more important than how they appeared to humans, it says that they were upright in the sight of God. So more important than how humans viewed them, God says they are upright. And again, that doesn't mean they're perfect, doesn't mean they're without sin, but it means they are, in an, they are in a right relationship to God. They love Him. They trust Him. They, they want to obey Him. They want to be faithful. And so they are, in God's eyes, 
They are upright. They are rightly related to him. But, verse 7, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. And so even though they are, they are rightly related to God, they are in a right relationship, things have not turned out as they had hoped. The Old Testament mindset was that if you are righteous, if you do the right things, if you obey the law, then, then God is going to come through for you. God is going to bless you. You do your part, and God does His part. It's like a contract. And so that was, the, that was how most people viewed this. And so for them to not be blessed, and the biggest blessing in, in kind of the ancient mind was to have children. And so for them to not be able to have children proved to people, to many people, that there was something wrong with them, that they had sinned. Even though that they appeared blameless, people would look at Elizabeth and say, well, she can't have kids, so she must have done something really bad, really evil. God must be punishing her for something. And in this culture, at this time, the rabbis, most rabbis, said that if a man was getting older and his wife was getting older and she could not have children, that proved that she had sinned somehow and the man could divorce her and marry a younger, you know, trade her in for a newer model and, and have kids. Really, it's, it, they would say, the rabbis said, it's his responsibility to keep his family line going. And so, so Zechariah is probably facing a lot of pressure to do that from his own family to say, look, Zechariah, you got to keep, you got to keep your lineage. You got to think about this. Elizabeth has failed you somehow. And yet the fact that he doesn't probably shows us something about him, the kind of man that he is. Now, when we think of infertility in our, in our modern age, we think of missing out on the joy of, of raising children. And that is, a, that is a sad thing. But in ancient times, it was more than just that. Children provided security in your old age. They didn't have Social Security. They didn't have Medi- Medicare. And so children are the ones who would take care of their, their parents when their parents got old. It was your retirement plan. Uh, and so if you did not have kids, you were in real danger. An older couple without children were in very real danger as they went into their, to their old age. And so that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth are facing. They've been faithful to God. They've been serving God. And yet here they are heading into old age without any safety net, any children. I imagine that they started their marriage with a lot of hope and a lot of excitement. I, I, you know, I can't prove that, but I just imagine as they got married, they were probably looking at the future saying, man, God has good things ahead for us. We're going we're gonna to serve God faithfully. We're going to take care of our little synagogue and we're going we're gonna to prepare people for the Messiah who's coming. We're going to help people to be righteous and to love God. And we're going to raise our kids to love God. But things hadn't worked out as they'd hoped. And so think how their love for God must have been tested five years 10 years, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years of waiting and waiting. And all the while, Herod continues to oppress the Israelites. And there's no evidence that God cares. There's no divine intervention. See, I think it's so easy for us as we're reading the Bible to just jump from one event to the next event and not have a sense for how much time is going past in between events. And the danger of that is we get this, this expectation that God's activity, His supernatural work in our lives will just be frequent and constant and, and we'll, we'll always, and obvious, right? And we'll always see God working and He'll be doing miracles all over the place because that's what it seems like He's doing in the Bible. But when we really pay attention, we realize that there are a lot of years going by in between. You know, you think of Abraham. God says, you're going to have a son. 
25 more years before that happens. Or Moses, he's, he's the chosen one, right? He's the Harry Potter of the Bible. He's the chosen one, and, and he goes 40... I shouldn't have said Harry Potter, sorry. <laughs> Eyebrow, eyebrows are raising all over the church. He goes 40 years in the wilderness taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. I'm sure he did not think that that was really living up to what his calling was. And so here is Zechariah and Elizabeth going for decades without children, under the rule of this evil king, and yet they stayed faithful. They stayed faithful. They kept trusting God. Like the author of Hebrews says, their their eyes were on a heavenly country, and they're living here as aliens and foreigners, and they're saying, God, you're going to keep your promise either in this life or the next, but we're going to trust you. We're not going to give up. And so they kept persevering in faith and running with, for the joy set before them. Verse 8. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So again, twice a year, If you're a priest, you're in this division, 750 priests in your division. Twice a year, you would go up to the temple. And so this is his time. This is his week. And so he goes up, and there's all these different jobs. Who knows what job you're going to get? Maybe you've got to scrub the the toilets or whatever. I don't know. But there's lots of jobs to do in the temple. But the big job is to be able to go into the holy place and put incense on the altar. If you think of the temple as a really big building, there's a big area for the general worshipers, like the worship center. But then there's another room, it's called the holy place. And then in that room, there's this little area curtained off where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant would be, and that's the Holy of Holies. And so the, a regular priest can't go in the Holy of Holies, but one priest is allowed to go into the holy place and put incense on the altar. And so to, to find out who would do that, they would have a lot. They would, they would probably uh, roll a dice and figure out to decide who is the one that God has chosen. And, and you can imagine, right, 750 priests in your division, you get to go twice a year, uh, not real good odds. And so most guys would only get to do this once in their lifetime. So this is the time, this is the mo- big moment for Zechariah. He gets, he gets picked, uh, God has selected him, he's excited, he goes in there, he puts incense on the altar and it burns, and that symbolizes our prayers going up to God. And then he says a prayer probably. Well, he would have said a prayer. He puts the incense on, says a prayer, probably prays for the Messiah to come. That would have been the, the, the common prayer at this time. Prays for the Messiah, opens his eyes, and sees something that really surprises him. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
So angels in our culture, our pop culture, are, are either cute or friendly, right? If you ever go and get the Hallmark cards, it's either the really chubby babies, like, you know, with the little cupids shooting their arrows, or it's like kind of a grandma or just kind of a real, real sweet-looking woman um, or very gentle-looking guy. Um, but angels in the Bible are, are big and they're powerful and they're really supernatural, and people are, are scared. And they always have to tell people, hey, don't be afraid. Like, I know you, you feel like you're about to have a heart attack. Don't. Don't. Ha- don't. You know, whole, you know, defibrillators, right? Uh, don't be afraid. That's what they have to say to people. When I was a kid, um, <clears throat> I, I grew up, I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up on a farm. I, I was in, kind of in the country, but kind of in like the edge of suburbia. So just kind of a normal normal boy, and I, I uh, imagined myself as a cowboy a lot of times. I would imagine myself riding horses. I did not have a horse. I did not hang out around horses, but I imagined that I would just be a, like the horse whisperer, like I would just be a natural horse person. And so I just imagined myself, you know, hopping up on a horse, bareback, and just kind of, you know, riding around. It's easy. It's not, not a problem. But the few times I actually met horses, it was scary, man. Those things are big. They could, like, kick you. And then when people would, like, help me up on the horse, right, because I'm all scared, like, little seven-year-old, and they get you up on the horse, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to fall, right? Because they're, they're tall, and when they gallop, you're, like, you know, you're holding on because you think you're going to die. That's what a real horse is like. Some of you know. They're big. They're powerful. They're scary if, you, if you're not used to them. And I think that's what it, was, it is like with angels, we're like, oh, it'd be awesome to see an angel. And then you see it, and you're like, oh, my goodness, like, go away. Right? I'm, I'm really scared. And so poor old Zachariah, he, he sees this angel, and he's, you know, he's having a heart attack. And, but the angel says, hey, hey, don't, don't be afraid. I have some good news for you, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. You will have a son. Now, this is, I think we can kind of skip over this, but think about the implication here when he says that. Zachariah and Elizabeth have been praying for decades, maybe 40 years for a child. No answer. Nothing. No answer. And the angel says, look guys, God heard your prayer. So God didn't just kind of tune in recently. He's heard your prayer the whole time. But he chose to wait to answer your prayer until right now because this is the time for that child to be born. His mission is now. There's a purpose for him to be born now. There's a purpose for your prayer to be answered now after 40 years. God has a reason for the timing for his answers to prayer. Now, what's interesting is the angel doesn't explain why God waited to tell Zechariah. Like, it seems like it would have been a lot easier for Zechariah to wait if God, had, 40 years ago, had said, hey, hey, I know you're praying, just hold on 40 more years and you'll have the baby. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that for us most of the time when we're praying. God has his reasons, but he wants us to trust him, to persevere and to say, I know, God, that you are going to answer this in your timing, in your way, if it's your will. And so the angel goes on and he says, this child will be a joy and a delight to you and to many people. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and he's going to go on in the power of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There's, there's some d- discussion on what that means in the commentaries. We're not quite sure. It could mean that fathers were bad fathers. But probably more likely, the term fathers here refers to leaders, the spiritual leaders in Israel. And the children are... are 
the, the, the less mature believers, those who would have been taken care of by these spiritual fathers. And so the idea is that the religious leaders weren't really caring for their flock. They didn't really love the flock and care for them. And so John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to begin to turn leaders to, to love their flock and to care for them. And he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. He's not going to drink alcohol. Now we're not quite sure why. There's some people think, well, maybe he's a Nazarite. Nazarites in the Old Testament didn't drink alcohol. But he has, there's no requirement about not cutting his hair, so we're not quite sure about this. The reality is, in the Bible, God never forbids drinking alcohol generally. He never says, you shall not drink. It's not in the Bible. Some of you may be surprised to know that. It's not. But Paul says that God can convict certain people not to drink alcohol. He has the right to tell you to do something that he does not require of others. And he has the right to tell you not to do something that, he, that is okay for other people. He's the Lord. you got to deal with that. If you're a Christian, you signed up and you said, you're my master, God. And so he has the right to tell you how to live your life. Now, I think one of the problems comes in, certainly we can be disobedient to that, but if we obey God, then another problem comes in, and we tend to want to take our personal convictions and to apply them to everybody. And so, maybe God has convicted you not to watch a certain TV show. You've been watching this show for a while, and this conviction has grown in your heart, and you're like, I know God is, is really saying, this isn't what I should be watching. This isn't pleasing to Him. This isn't good for me. And so you say, okay, I'm I'm not going to watch this show anymore. But it doesn't follow then that you have the right to go around telling everybody in our church that they can't watch it and judging people who do. It's a conviction that God has convicted you, but he can convict his other children according to what he wants them to do or not to do. You think about it. John the Baptist didn't drink, but Jesus did. And John never scolded Jesus, right? He didn't look down on Jesus. He called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And Jesus didn't mock John for being legalistic. He wasn't like, man, John, what's your problem, dude? Come on, have a drink. He didn't. He said John was the greatest man ever born. They recognized that they had different callings. And and we need to treat each other that way too. If God is our Father, He's able to communicate things to us. If you have a conviction about something that goes beyond what is written in Scripture, we need to obey what Scripture says. But if it's something beyond, like like a TV show or whether or not you should drink, uh, obey God. Follow that, absolutely. But you have no right to demand that other people share your conviction. And we have no right to try to trip you up in that. To try to make you stumble. Okay? So John's mission is to prepare people for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Lord. To do that, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. The phrase from birth here, it can be from birth, literally from the moment of birth, or another translation of this can be, uh, can be from while still in the womb, from the time in the womb. It can go either way. It's, a, it's a kind of a tricky phrase here. And probably it should be translated here while still in the womb because a few verses later, Luke says that when Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and greets Elizabeth, the, the child inside of Elizabeth jumps. And the idea is the Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's, who's doing that. And so I think the implication here is that if an unborn child has the capacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then that child is a person, right? Right? And the Bible is pretty clear that killing an innocent person is murder. And so I think abortion clearly is murder from this passage. And I know some of you would love for me to get real political right now and go off on this. I'm not going to. 
But I think we, I, should, I just want to say, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all know that unborn babies are alive and they are persons. And they have the same right to life that all people do. All right? So moving on. If you, are talk, if you ever have a chance to talk to somebody who's really famous, uh, just be careful what you say. Don't stick your foot in your mouth, right? That's, that's kind of the, the goal. I, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody really famous, but if I were to meet somebody famous, if I were to talk to a president, I would try to limit what I said. I would probably say things like, uh, it's nice to meet you, and if he said something to me, I would say, uh-huh, and yes, thank you. I mean, even if thank you isn't a, quite in the right spot, at least it's not really weird or you know, you just don't want to say something stupid and stick your foot in your mouth. Uh, but Zachariah never learned that lesson, unfortunately. <laughs> Nobody ever said, hey, if you meet an angel, here's some things not to say. And so he makes a couple mistakes here. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So, angel says, hey, Zechariah, good news. Your prayers have been answered. And Zechariah's response is, uh... Dude, are you sure? Because I'm really old. I, how do I know? How do I know this is from God? Now, to be fair, to be fair to Zechariah, the Bible does tell us to test the spirits. Paul says that. Unfortunately, people do have visions uh, where spirits tell them some unbiblical things. All right, and so Paul says that Satan and his servants can appear as angels of light. And so we we do if if even if something comes to you and appears as an angel, you need to test its message. Even if you have a vision or a near-death experience, you need to test the message because Satan does try to trick people that way. However, in this case, uh, Gabriel's like, look, man, you've been praying for, for decades to have a baby. You were finally chosen to offer incense on the altar. Finally, uh, God chose you. And then he sent me to say that your prayer has been answered. What more proof do you need? I'm not saying anything unbiblical here. I'm just, just telling you the good news. See, it's not bad to test things uh, and to want good reasons to believe, but sometimes doubt is not an issue of evidence. It's just a matter of a lack of faith. It's just doubting that God is who He is and that He can do what He says He can do. And that's Zechariah's issue here. Okay, he doesn't believe that God can answer his prayer. He's not suspicious of the message. He just says, well, I'm old and, and my wife is old. And so even though he sees this angel, he doubts whether God has the supernatural power to do what the angel says he's going to do. And so Gabriel says, dude, just, just shut up, man. Just be quiet, right? Just, Zachary's like, can't talk. It's like, I've had enough of your stupidity. And probably your wife has too, so I'm going to give her a nine-month reprieve from having to listen to you. That's why Elizabeth was happy. 
It says, you will not be able to speak until your baby is born because you did not believe God could do what I said that he would. Uh, but Elizabeth has a very different response from Zechariah. She becomes pregnant. So apparently Zechariah did have enough faith to at least try for a baby. That wasn't his problem. Um, so she becomes pregnant. She goes into seclusion. Uh, verse, verse 25 here. Uh, 24 and 25. I love these verses. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the, the people. This is such a beautiful picture here. I love this, this ending. This is a woman who loves the Lord and she's been faithful to him all her life. And yet because she could not have kids, she was mocked, she was shamed, she was looked down on, she was judged. And so when God miraculously answers her prayer and gives her hope, her first response is not to run around the village saying, look at this, guys, <laughs> I told you. No, no, her first, her first response is to spend time thanking God. Just, to just get alone with God and say, God, thank you, thank you. And there's some applications here for us. I think there's a couple. One... If people are judging you and shaming you, mocking you, either because for something that you didn't do, something that you are being misjudged over, or perhaps you have done something shameful and now people are judging you and and shaming you, I think our response is to be very defensive and to try to defend ourselves and to get worked up and get upset. But I think Elizabeth is an example of someone who is able to trust God. And go to God and say, God, do you see these people? Please take away my shame. And I believe that God can and will in his time. He can vindicate you. Paul tells us that. To, to, leave, to, leave, uh, to leave judgment to, to God. It's his to avenge. To leave wrath to God. And so I think there's a place for saying, you know what, God? I'm, I'm being judged by these people. It's unfair. Or maybe it's fair, but I've changed. I'm different now. And to let God vindicate you. To let God show that you are right, that you are his. But then also, I think think the other application here is that when God answers our prayers, when he gives us hope, we've been praying for this, he answers, we have hope all of a sudden, our tendency is either to say, oh, thank you, God, and then move on. Or to just kind of check it off the list and say, okay, thanks for that one, God. Now here's the next thing on my list. I've I've been praying for this one too, right? So where's the answer here? Uh, But Elizabeth just spends time saying, thank you, God. Five months. That's a long time. I don't know how long it took her to realize she was pregnant, but for months, she's spending time just with God and her silent husband and saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for for Zechariah, and he's quiet, and thank you for this child. Uh, And so as we go into uh, the final weeks here of the Christmas season, we have two more weeks or whatever, um, our tendency, I think, is to, is to say that we're thanking God for our blessings and we're celebrating with family and friends. And that's appropriate. That's good to give glory to God with other people and say, and, and, and eventually Elizabeth does that. And she gives glory to God with Mary and with others. Uh, and there's a time and a place for that. But I think there's also, this is a good reason to say, I need to get alone with God during this holiday season and just spend some time in seclusion just with God thanking him for the hope that he's brought me, for the answers to prayer. Of course, the greatest hope is Christ, that he has given you hope. He's given you new life through Jesus. And just spending time thanking him for that and then thinking of other ways that he's answered prayers and that he's blessed you and he's given you hope this year and taking time to thank him for that, to not just uh, cruise on through the season and forget what God has done for us. All right, let's pray.
Father, I thank you that you are still the same God who did the things in the Bible that we read about. Lord, we recognize that we can't expect it to be a moment-by-moment, mountaintop-to-mountaintop experience, that there are going to be valleys, there are going to be times where we're questioning and wondering, uh, but we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who gives hope, who answers prayers, and that ultimately, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, we are a people living for a heavenly country. We are aliens here, foreigners here, but the answer to all your promises will someday be given to us. We thank you for that. We pray that this season we can walk with you. We can take time to be with you, to praise you, and to thank you for what you've done for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Take time this Christmas to thank God for His lights and for the hope that He has given to us through Jesus and praise Him for what He has done in your life.